Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 6th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. The U.S. Senate unveils a $118 billion national security bill. More than 100 are killed in Chilean wildfires. Antony Blinken visits the Middle East. El Salvador's Bukele claims an election victory. An Australian writer is given a suspended death sentence in China. Tucker Carlson travels to Russia. The U.S. launches further strikes against Yemen's Houthis. Boeing flags additional faults in its 737 MAX 9 planes. Meta's board criticizes the company over an altered Biden video. Southern California is hit by another atmospheric river. And a study finds the Earth may have already reached plus 1.5 degrees Celsius in 2010. The U.S. Senate unveils a $118 billion national security bill. And the facts are agreed upon by Associated Press, Voice of America, CNN, Washington Post, and Al Jazeera. On Sunday, U.S. Senators unveiled a $118 billion bipartisan bill aimed at boosting security at the U.S.-Mexico border and providing wartime aid to Ukraine and Israel. The legislation, characterized as, quote, monumental by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, earmarks $60 billion to support Ukraine, $14 billion to support Israel in its war against Hamas, and $10 billion for humanitarian assistance in conflict zones. Additional funds include supporting security operations in the Red Sea and balancing China in the Indo-Pacific region. The proposal also allocates over $20 billion to address the operational needs at the U.S.-Mexico border, far more than the $14 billion President Joe Biden had sought. However, the bill's prospects seemed bleak, as House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, called it, quote, dead on arrival as part of a more vocal opposition within the GOP, including former President Donald Trump. The first procedural vote on the legislation is expected on Wednesday. There is some opposition from some Democrats who are concerned over the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, has suggested that the aid to Israel be limited to defensive weaponry. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric laid out the facts for us, and now for some narrative, starting with the Republican spin from Wall Street Journal. The new Senate bill is just a stopgap, and an inadequate one at that. It does nothing to tackle the catastrophe along the Mexico border that the Biden administration has let brew. It barely attempts to touch upon matters that the Democrats had, till now, chosen to ignore. The White House must prioritize the southern border and take a hard look at its overseas engagements and whether it makes sense to prioritize military assistance for Israel over Ukraine. And The Hill comes back with their Democratic narrative. Both Republicans and Democrats have put in months of hard work to shape the bipartisan border deal introduced on Sunday. It's a fair starting point and a long journey to foster a solid and effective immigration policy. The GOP hard right shouldn't hold U.S. aid to its allies hostage due to grandstanding in an election year. The White House is committed to border security and supporting America's allies in a responsible manner. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 50% chance that the U.S. will give $3.1 billion in aid to Israel in 2030. Tragedy in Chile as raging wildfires kill more than 100. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Reuters, BBC News, and The Washington Post. 
Chile has declared a state of emergency after massive wildfires killed at least 112 people in the country's central Valparaiso region. The toll is expected to rise as about 40 of the 164 wildfires reported till now are active. The fires broke out Friday and have left 1,600 people homeless, destroying entire neighborhoods, along with a nearly century-old botanical garden and 8,000 hectares of forest area. Chilean President Gabriel Boric has announced two days of national mourning from Monday and warned the country of more bad news as it faces a tragedy of very great magnitude. The cities of Viña del Mar, Limache, Quilpue, and Villa Alamana are now under curfew, reportedly to make way for emergency vehicles and firefighters. The cause of the forest fires is being probed. The military has deployed to assist firefighters and helicopters and are spraying water to douse the blaze, arguably the country's worst national disaster since the 2010 earthquake. Wildfires are not common during summers in the Southern Hemisphere, and high temperatures in some impacted areas have reached 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. In February 2023, raging wildfires killed at least 24 and destroyed an estimated 270,000 hectares. Scott, thanks for presenting the facts. The first spin is Narrative A coming from Gulf today. Climate change-driven extreme weather has worsened forest fires in Chile. Record heat waves and unusually high temperatures have turned a general summer phenomenon into an unprecedented environmental disaster, which, in the absence of a comprehensive response, threatens to destroy the ecological balance and cause unforeseeable harm to human habitats. And Narrative B comes from El Pais, the culprit behind the extended hot and dry conditions, including low humidity and high wind speeds, isn't climate change, but the El Nino weather phenomenon. It has caused droughts and led to hotter-than-usual temperatures along western South America, increasing the risk of forest fires. This is a natural phenomenon and outside the scope of Chile's climate mitigation efforts. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that wildfires will destroy tree cover, exceeding 10 megahectares globally in any year by the end of 2030. Blinken arrives in Saudi Arabia as Hamas considers a hostage deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Guardian, Jerusalem Post, Associated Press, The New Arab, and MSN. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to Saudi Arabia on Monday as part of a diplomatic tour through the region to discuss a possible hostage deal to which Hamas has not officially responded. Blinken is also reportedly set to discuss regional escalation and U.S. strikes against Iranian-backed groups. As the likelihood of a deal being agreed upon soon remains unclear, there are growing concerns that Israeli forces will advance into the southern city of Rafah, a tiny pocket of the territory in which over one million displaced Palestinians are sheltering. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Monday that the majority of Hamas's battalions in Gaza had been destroyed, adding that the rest were in the south and Israel would, quote, deal with them. In contrast to Netanyahu's comments, the Israeli military tacitly acknowledged reports that Hamas is attempting to re-establish aspects of its civil administration in northern Gaza, with unarmed operatives handing out money, supplies, and directives. The military said that it is addressing this and would not allow Hamas to regroup in the north of the Strip. Over the weekend, Israel also delivered its most detailed warning yet to Hezbollah in neighboring Lebanon, saying that war is not the first priority but Israel would be ready to attack immediately if provoked. Israel also indicated that strikes against Hezbollah would not be constrained to Lebanon. 
Israel and Hezbollah have been exchanging fire along the border since the war began. A report on Sunday claimed that a deal currently being discussed would include Hezbollah withdrawing its forces from the border in exchange for Israel withdrawing from disputed territory. Hezbollah said that it will not negotiate until there is a ceasefire in Gaza. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has killed over 27,000 people in the Gaza Strip, the majority of whom were women and children. The war has also created a rapidly deteriorating humanitarian situation. The official Israeli death toll on October 7th stands at around 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. No shortage of narratives on this story. Let's start with the pro-establishment spin from Politico. The U.S. is doing everything it can to both ensure that Israel can eliminate Hamas's military capabilities and prevent regional escalation. Israel must be able to defend itself from terrorist attacks, whether from Gaza or elsewhere, and is taking the right steps to wind down its military operations in Gaza, as it is not in the U.S. or Israel's best interest to see the conflict escalate. Nevertheless, the U.S. is prepared to defend its allies in the region and deter threats to regional and global security. The Jerusalem Post has a pro-Israel narrative. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel must eliminate Hamas and restore deterrence with Iran and its proxy Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a terrorist army with far greater military capabilities than Hamas, and Israel cannot allow its citizens residing in the north to live under the constant threat of terrorist attacks. The UN resolution that ended the 2006 war with Hezbollah has failed to ensure Israel's security. And if some sort of new arrangement is not made, Israel will be forced to intervene. Likewise, in Gaza, Hamas's military capabilities must be eliminated to ensure Israel's security. Pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas or Hezbollah, but against the Palestinian and Lebanese people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered large swaths of the Strip uninhabitable. Israel is killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate and has transformed Gaza into a wasteland. Though the U.S., Israel's biggest ally, wants to minimize the war's intensity, it must instead exert more pressure to end the war completely. And the narratives keep coming. Here's Narrative D from Al-Mayadeen. Hezbollah has so far successfully deterred Israel from violating Lebanon's sovereignty while also avoiding a devastating war that it does not want. Hezbollah cannot allow Israel to undertake such deplorable actions without consequence, and it has made concrete military gains against Israeli forces along the border. Israel, backed by the U.S., is committing atrocious crimes in Gaza to which Hezbollah has been forced to respond. Though Hezbollah seeks to end the bloodshed, it is ready to defend Lebanon. And last but not least, another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 0.1% chance that Lebanon will come under French rule again before 2025. Oh, you're wondering that one. <laughs> I didn't even know Lebanon was under French control in the first place. Exactly. Like, I mean, that, so that's, I mean, that's, they that's a the lead problem. There. But they yeah. buried the lead, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> We've landed on the moon! <laughs> El Salvador's Bukele claims a big election victory. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Breitbart, Merco Press, BBC News, The Associated Press, Reuters, and Barron's. Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele announced that he has been re-elected for a second term on Sunday, claiming to have gained more than 85% of the popular vote, reputedly the largest percentage in history, with his New Ideas Party winning at least 58 out of the National Assembly's 60 seats. 
According to preliminary results from the country's Supreme Electoral Tribunal released on Monday morning after 70% of the ballots had been counted, Bukele led with 83% of the vote, while his closest rival, the left-wing Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, reached only 7%. If confirmed, Bukele will become the first two-term leader in the country since the end of the Civil War in 1992 as the Supreme Court allowed him to circumvent a constitutional ban on consecutive terms and run for re-election. This landslide win for the incumbent shows popular support for at least some of his controversial policies, particularly the state of exception introduced in March 2022 to crack down on gangs. Human rights organizations claim this has led to the unlawful arrest of thousands of innocent people. Security authorities claimed in January that the homicide rate in El Salvador dropped roughly 70% in 2023 from 495 to 154, allegedly the lowest rate in the Americas apart from Canada, 2.4 per every 100,000 people, as a result of the emergency measures in effect since 2022. More than 75,000 people, over 1% of the country's population, have been arrested as suspected gang members under the state of emergency, with 7,000 being later released. El Salvador had one of the world's highest murder rates at 38 per every 100,000 people when Bukele took power in 2019. Scott, thanks for the facts. Let's check out this round of spins, the first spin being a pro-establishment narrative coming from America's Quarterly. The decline of the democratic multi-party system in El Salvador is a matter of fact now, as the Latin American country is once again under a de facto one-party dictatorship that has co-opted state institutions. While Bukele may have recorded a supermajority due to an improvement in security, this nearly unanimous support may wane if his government fails to address the country's dire economic and social conditions. And the establishment critical narrative comes from El Salvador in English. The result for Bukele is an incredible moment, a record-breaking show of support for a leader within the history of global democracy. After an unprecedented popular mandate, El Salvador continues to stand behind the man who has transformed the country for the better and will no doubt continue to lead the nation forward. And the nerds from Metaculus are saying there's a 20% chance that El Salvador will experience a civil war before 2036. So they said that they uh, changed their rule and allowed for someone to be reelected with consecutive terms. But I kind of like that idea. If you're going to get reelected, you have to skip a term. That would be an interesting rule. Like you can't just roll in. You have to stick around and remain relevant and want people to still want you. Kind of like they say, uh, if you want to buy something, wait 30 days or wait, wait 24 hours, do whatever. Right. Um, to avoid that buyer's remorse. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I kind of like that idea. Now, of course, I, they just circumvented it. So sure. Well, no. We had one president that did that, right? Was it Grover Cleveland? Grover Cleveland. Yeah. And I remember looking at that. And when I was a kid in the history books, you'd you'd look at all the pictures of the presidents in a row and thinking, huh, how the heck did that happen? That must have been strange times. We're looking down the barrel of a possibility of that right now, too. I know. Maybe these are strange times. People are strange. (laughs) Yes. China suspends a death sentence for an Australian writer. The facts are agreed upon by BBC News. Sky News, The Guardian, CNN, Al Jazeera, and The Telegraph. A Chinese court has issued a suspended death sentence to Australian scholar Yang Henjun for allegedly spying for an unnamed country. The sentence came five years after he was arrested at the Guangzhou airport. Yang, a 57-year-old blogger, was arrested in 2019. His sentence, which could be commuted to life imprisonment if he commits no more crimes, has been made public three years after he was tried in a closed-door hearing. 
Yang's family said the Chinese court's decision was the extreme end of worst expectations. The Australian government said it was appalled by this decision, and it also registered its protest with the Chinese ambassador. China, which has not revealed the country Yang allegedly spied for, also denied Australian diplomats entry to his trial. Yang said last year he might die in prison after doctors found a cyst in his kidney. Yang reportedly worked for the Chinese Ministry of State Security for 14 years. He moved to Australia in 2000 and transformed himself into a liberal, his own characterization. At the time of his arrest, he was working in New York. Yang was reportedly held in a dungeon-like cell with no direct sunlight for years. He was rarely able to read books or write letters home. His sentencing could potentially hinder attempts to revive diplomatic ties between Canberra and Beijing. Thanks, Eric. We have an anti-China narrative from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. China is pushing the envelope on everyday liberties and brazenly mocking the global community. Even by the country's own standards, Yang's case is appalling. His mistreatment by the opaqueness of his trial and now his inexplicable death sentence, even if suspended, show a disregard for basic human rights. Alarmingly, this follows a wider pattern the free world must not ignore. The Global Times has a pro-China narrative. Beijing has strong and valid reasons to believe Yang was spying for another country. But as usual, China's critics are lashing out at its legal processes without reason. His trial was held out of the public eye because it involved sensitive state secrets. Australia, along with other countries, must respect Chinese courts and stop interfering in its internal affairs. Yang's legal rights have been given all due consideration. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the total aggregate score given to China by Freedom House in 2028 will be at least 11.3. All right, big media news as Tucker Carlson visits Russia, possibly to interview Putin. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, The Telegraph, The Independent, Forbes and The Guardian. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson was spotted in Moscow on Thursday, attending the Spartacus Ballet at the Bolshoi Theater. This prompted questions about whether he was visiting to interview Russian President Vladimir Putin. But when asked, Carlson said, we'll see. He also said he had never visited before, adding that he wanted to talk to people, look around, and see how it's doing, and it's doing very well. Carlson reportedly sat down to be interviewed by a Russian journalist at his hotel. The interview was released by Russian newspaper Izvestia, which quoted the interview as saying Carlson was the best American journalist. The reaction to Carlson's visit was mixed among Western public figures. Previously, Dmitry Peskov, Putin's spokesman, said the time will come for Putin to do an interview with a Western media outlet. According to a post on X, formerly Twitter, Anton Garishchenko, Ukraine's former advisor to the Internal Affairs Ministry, Putin doesn't usually sit down with journalists one-on-one -on -one and hasn't done it since he talked to NBC's Keir Simmons in 2021. In September, Carlson told Swiss media outlet Die Velvoka he tried to interview Putin after the conflict in Ukraine broke out, but the U.S. government stopped him. Thank you, Scott. The spins begin with the left narrative coming from Vanity Fair. This disturbing development should convince everyone about Carlson's tie to the Kremlin. He's been spreading pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine propaganda for years, to the point where Russian state media used his rhetoric on its TV stations. Carlson has shown his true colors before, but personally interviewing Russia's autocratic leader would be his most dangerous media decision yet. The Spectator brings us the right narrative spin. Leading journalists used to conduct interviews like this for all sorts of world leaders. 
Modern-day broadcast journalists are afraid to do so out of fear of being labeled a, a Russian or Putin apologist. With every other Western media outlet already characterizing Putin as a literal tyrant, if done correctly, Tucker could give the world a fresh, unopinionated report to allow viewers to make informed decisions. As expected, the nerds from Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of President of Russia by October 9th, 2028. At 3.28 p.m. with cloudy skies and a little breeze from the south or southwesterly direction. Now, that's a leap year, right? So that'll be 9.35 instead? Not, that, exactly. Okay, that's right. I, I, it goes without saying, of course. Uh, it does, yeah. yes. And Putin's laundry will be, I think it's going to be ready at uh, 2 o'clock that Fluff day. Fluff and fold. Yep, yes, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, no yes. starch. No, yep. no, no, no. No, not at all. Now, uh, Tucker Carlson has a, a paid website, and he also puts out some of his interviews for free. What do you think? Does this one go behind a paywall, or does he put this one out for everyone to see? Oh, my goodness. I think he puts this one out for everybody to see. Yeah, I think you're probably right. It, but when he's, but when I was, he's trying to make a statement like that yeah, yeah he wants, he wants the right. world to know it i think you're right i think i think he almost would uh owe it to the world to put it out there probably owe it to his own publicity as well that's what i'm saying there's no such thing as bad publicity put that thing out and see where it sticks right charge for the next one yeah exactly <laughs> want to see the sequel pay for it <laughs> the u.s launches additional strikes against the houthis here are the facts as agreed upon by bbc news voice of america associated press washington post cnn and middle east i the U.S. military launched new attacks on Sunday against the Iran-aligned Houthi group in Yemen, which claims to be attacking ships in the Red Sea in solidarity with the Palestinians over the Gaza conflict. Washington also warned of further attacks targeting Iran-backed groups in Iraq and Syria. The U.S. Central Command claimed the self-defense strikes hit four anti-ship missiles, allegedly being prepared to be fired against ships in the Red Sea, adding they posed an imminent threat to the U.S. naval vessels and commercial ships in the region. This comes a day after joint U.S.-U.K. strikes targeted 36 Houthi sites across 13 locations in Yemen. Meanwhile, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has warned that the strikes will continue until the Houthis stop their illegal attacks on commercial and military vessels in the Red Sea. However, Mohammed al-Bakaidi of the Houthi Political Bureau has said that the Houthis will meet escalation with escalation and that the group's operations will continue until Israel ends its Gaza military campaign. This comes as, on Friday, the U.S. struck 85 targets linked to facilities and weapons of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its proxies in Iraq and Syria in response to the killing of three U.S. service members at a Jordanian military outpost. Though U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who previously didn't rule out direct strikes against Iran, insists Washington seeks to avoid regional tensions from escalating into a wider war. Iran argues that U.S.-led attacks contradict its stated desire. Thanks, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from CNN. The Houthis use the Gaza war as a pretext to justify their Red Sea aggression. Their anti-American and anti-Israeli stance serves the purpose of increasing their regional popularity and consolidating their domestic authority. The U.S. and its allies' retaliatory strikes are a powerful means of deterring the Houthis and other Iranian proxies. Indeed, Washington's firm stance prompted Iran's proxy militia in Iraq to announce a halt to its operations against U.S. targets following the attack that killed three U.S. service members. Press TV has an establishment critical narrative. Framed as retaliation for the deaths of three service members, the U.S. and its proxies are stepping up their indiscriminate attacks against regional resistance groups such as the Houthis, who are allied with Iran but not under Tehran's command. 
The Houthis are conducting their operations in solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza, while the U.S. is deliberately escalating tensions instead of asking Israel to announce an immediate ceasefire. The illegal and mindless U.S. attacks will only accelerate the end of U.S. regional hegemony. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 13% chance that the U.S. and Iran will be primary actors on opposite sides of a war before 2025. Boeing flags further faults in 737 MAX 9 planes. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by MarketWatch, BBC News, Reuters, and Newsweek, aviation company Boeing will have to delay delivery of roughly 50 of its newest 737 MAX 9 planes after new faults were discovered during assembly by Spirit Aerosystems. According to a letter from Boeing Commercial Airlines CEO Stan Deal to staff, first acquired by Reuters, the company became aware of the issue last Thursday after Spirit notified it of a nonconformance in some 737 fuselages. Deal thanked a supplier employee who flagged that two holes may not have been drilled exactly to our requirements. Deal also wrote that the potential condition was not an immediate flight safety issue, confirming that all current 737s could continue operating safely. Rather, Deal noted that rework was likely on about 50 undelivered airplanes. Previously, a Boeing 737 in January experienced a blowout of a door plug on an Alaska Airlines flight shortly after takeoff. While no one was seriously injured, the incident led to the Federal Aviation Authority temporarily grounding all 171 MAX 9 planes until further tests and inspections could be completed. Following the latest news, shares in Boeing dropped 2% in pre-market trading and even further Monday, a reduction that brought its losses to just under 20% for the year. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Boeing. Boeing is in close dialogue with its employees to identify where improvements can be made and is doing all it can to ensure such issues as this never arise again. Although this work will temporarily delay existing orders, Boeing is committed to carrying out this work to ensure the quality, safety, and stability of anything coming out of its factories. And The Guardian brings us Narrative B. It's completely unthinkable that these planes are still able to fly given that fresh issues are still being consistently reported. If you had a car that had a piece fly off while driving, prompting you to take it to a mechanic, and the mechanic says, here you go, the car is fixed. We found other problems, but you can still take it out on the road. You'd still be scratching your head. This situation is no different. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 16% chance that there will be a commercial service to travel between London and New York City in under three hours before January 1st, 2030. Hey, sign me up. But how, how fast was it when the Concorde was in the air? I don't know. I, I oh, so, that was, so that was going from New York to London, I think in just a few hours. I don't know. But that was supersonic. Yeah. Um, in under three hours before, I mean, obviously it must be more than three hours uh, yeah. because if they're talking about this. Part of the appeal of the Concorde is that it kind of felt like a throwback. Like you, I almost feel like I'd have to dress up a little bit to go on the Concorde. You're right. right? Yeah, it was a special occasion. Meta's board criticizes the company over a fake Biden video. The facts are agreed upon by BBC News, CBS, Associated Press, Washington Post, CNBC, and TechCrunch. Meta's independent oversight board criticized the tech giant's policy on manipulated media, saying that it is incoherent and overly focused on content that is altered with artificial intelligence. The statement comes after the board reviewed a doctored video that portrayed President Joe Biden inappropriately touching his granddaughter. 
In a ruling on Monday, the board determined that the video in question did not violate Meta's policies and could remain on the platform. The content was posted in May of 2023. Monday's ruling read, quote, Since the video in this post was not altered using AI and it shows President Biden doing something he did not do, not something he didn't say, it does not violate the existing policy. Despite allowing the video to remain on Facebook, the board said that Meta must expand its existing policies to focus on both audio and video media that has been altered with or without AI. While Meta's quasi-independent board can make binding decisions on specific cases of content moderation, it can only make recommendations on policy changes. Instead of removing manipulated content that does not violate rules, the board suggested Meta adds labels that tell users a specific post is altered. The board cautioned about the growing prominence of deep fakes and other altered content, noting that non-AI altered content is, quote, prevalent and not necessarily any less misleading than AI-generated counterparts. It also did not go as far as saying Meta should apply the same moderation policies to photos, since it may be too difficult to enforce. The board's co-chair said that imminent policy changes are specifically needed given elections taking place in 2024 saying that manipulated audio is, quote, one of the most potent forms of electoral misinformation. A Meta spokesperson said the company is, quote, reviewing the oversight board's guidance and will issue a public response in 60 days. Thanks, Eric. Narrative A comes from USA Today. Meta's oversight board made very common sense suggestions regarding manipulated content that respects freedom of expression online while seriously addressing the issue of altered content that could deceive voters. The proliferation of both AI-altered and non-AI-altered media has become a serious concern and is a big issue for democracy. Labeling audio and video media as manipulated will go a long way to ensuring that people are informed about what they are watching while not removing any and all satire. The New Republic says that while Meta's oversight board levied some valid criticisms of the company's manipulated content policy, its ruling on the fake Biden video is quite problematic given the imminence of the 2024 election and the amount of altered content circulating online. Many people are deceived by fake content online, and allowing a video that falsely depicts the president is dangerous, even if it's labeled as a manipulated video. The oversight board should have removed the fake video and issued a more ironclad ruling. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 75% chance that Meta will claim that there was AI-driven, coordinated, inauthentic behavior to influence the 2024 U.S. presidential election. You know, that video of you and Biden spelunking in uh, southern Australia is still circulating, dude. I mean, I've done everything I can to get it off the net. I well, that one was real. It was the it was the one where we're skydiving is fake. I'm sorry. We got to clear that up. You're kidding me. So that one was real. All yeah. this time I've been trying to remove it. I man. know. I know. It's yeah. I'm sorry about that. He's a big so, spelunker. You should see him, you know, pivot around those corners. You know, it's I know, but I'm not talking about how great he was. I'm talking about what happened to you. That was so embarrassing. I mean, well, let's just move on. Let's okay, just that's probably, okay. probably for the best. Yeah, yeah. Southern California is hit by a second consecutive atmospheric river. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, AccuWeather, The Guardian, and USA Today. Southern California on Monday was hit by a second consecutive rainstorm known as an atmospheric river, a narrow collection of moisture that collects over the ocean 
and can stretch for long distances across the sky, putting 1.4 million people in the Los Angeles area under a flash flood warning and causing flooded roadways and a loss of electrical power. Last week, the first atmospheric river hit Northern California with winds of up to 60 miles per hour, 96 kilometers per hour, knocking down trees and electrical lines. In the mountains, some wind gusts exceeded 80 miles per hour, or 128 kilometers per hour. Downtown Los Angeles received 4.1 inches or 10.4 centimeters of rain on Sunday, the city's wettest day since 2004. Rain in Los Angeles and the rest of Southern California was expected to continue throughout Monday, as the foothills and mountains are expected to receive up to 15 inches or 38.1 centimeters of rain and up to 6 inches or 15.2 centimeters in coastal areas and valleys. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in eight counties. The storm is the latest in the so-called Pineapple Express, which gets its name because of its plume of moisture starting near Hawaii, which began when one to six inches of rain saturated the state last Wednesday and Thursday. Scott, thanks for those facts. The left narrative comes from the L.A. Times. What was once seen as a weather event, what would happen once in a thousand years, has now happened in consecutive months and anthropogenic climate change is to blame. The oceans have warmed to record levels and are now combining with El Nino to create these catastrophic weather events. This is why it's time for those on the right side of the political aisle to take climate change seriously. And the right narrative spin from Daily Caller. A little more than a year ago, the Golden State was relieved that several atmospheric rivers cured its historic drought. So now that the climate has shifted to rainier winters, it's time for left-wing politicians who are too focused on an amorphous term like climate change and the suggestion to harm energy security to put more effort into building the physical infrastructure to mitigate harms from wetter weather. The nerds from Metaculus say there's an 80% chance that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement before January 1st, 2029, if a Republican wins the 2024 U.S. presidential election. We'll have to check with Adam, see if he's, he's floated away. You know what? I actually sent him a text uh, right before we started recording. Just, you know, I just said, hey, are you OK? And I haven't heard back from him yet. So we may have to start looking. <laughs> <laughs> According to a recent report, temperatures may have exceeded plus 1.5 degrees Celsius a decade ago. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, CNN and Nature. According to a new study published in the journal Nature Climate Change, the Earth may have already breached the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold above pre-industrial levels per the 2015 Paris Agreement. It further noted that surface temperatures may have hit plus 1.7 degrees Celsius between 2018 and 2022, and that global temperatures could reach plus 2 degrees Celsius soon. The scientists analyzed types of sponges, which were collected off the coast of Puerto Rico in the Eastern Caribbean, and grew layer by layer for centuries, offering insight into 300-year-old ocean temperatures. From this, they determined that the pre-industrial era should be pushed back to between 1700s and 1860. The period currently used as a basis for global warming is 1850 to 1900. Following global cooling in the early 1800s due to several volcanic eruptions, the study claims that early-onset global warming began in the mid-1860s, earlier than referenced in the Paris Agreement but still in line with previous climate reconstructions. By pushing the pre-industrial era back, it shows global temperatures have also been rising at a faster rate than previously thought since the 1990s. Given this new starting point and trajectory, the Earth could surpass plus 2.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2035. 
Some scientists have criticized the study as only being representative of the Caribbean and not global temperatures as a whole. However, one co-author of the study argued that data from the Caribbean has historically corresponded with average global temperatures. Thanks, Eric. We have Narrative A on this story from Newsweek. Using this study as a basis for understanding the complex issue of climate change is ill-advised. First of all, much more needs to be known about the sponges and how they age, and using only sponges collected from one region of the world will not result in an understanding of surface temperatures globally. If this study is taken too seriously, it could blur the scientific consensus relied upon to win the global fight against climate change. Narrative B comes from Yale E360. Whether global temperatures reached plus 1.5 degrees Celsius recently or not is somewhat irrelevant. The agreed-upon limit was set at 20 consecutive years of above pre-industrial temperatures, which means the world still has time and must work to bring CO2 levels down before it's too late. If we spend all our time debating at which point the limit has been reached, as a study like this suggests, we will one day wake up having crossed that threshold with no path of return. Narrative C comes from the New York Post. The possibility that the Paris Agreement limit has already been passed shows how useless and misleading climate alarmism has been. Every climate solution proposed by the so-called experts on this topic has systematically stripped the developing world of any chance it has to grow and prosper. Instead of the rich and powerful putting their money towards strengthening economies and infrastructure, climate alarmists have made the world poorer and weaker with spongy science like this. Finally, the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that the average global temperature in 2100 will be at least 2.61 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in 1880. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extract both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. 